When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Howard Jones. Howard, good to be talking with you. Well, thank you so much, Bob. Um, it's uh, very nice to be talking with you. Okay, people can't see this, but you're wearing a sweatshirt that says 930. What's that about? Um, well, I, I recently played the 930 Club in Washington, and I've been wanting to play there for so long, and they for some reason could never get me fit me in um and so i wanted to get some and they gave us some merch at the end of the night so it's a really comfy one <laughs> so are you the type of person who's you know bill wyman was a, of the stones was a famous collector well, he's still with us but he sold some of his stuff do you keep all the merch because you know promoters are legendary for giving gifts to performers you still have all that stuff um, no, I mean, I it, this was a, as a very special uh, thing for me because I normally I don't I wouldn't uh, take any kind of merch from the gig, but I just thought it was very cool. It's black, and um, I've always wanted to play there. And everybody asked me what that means. So <laughs> um, actually, it was one of the few venues where where they actually did uh, baby merch. And uh, one of our uh, one of our crew members has recently had a young baby, and my wife Jan um, bought some baby merch that um, we we got some pictures back today with the nine thirty logo on it. <laughs> okay, so how extensive is your merch that you sell at a gig? Uh, well, we always like to sell music because um, you know that's the most important thing to me. So so there'll always be like the the new CDs and vinyl, if we've got it. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple of great T-shirts. But, you know, it's really important to have the music there. And uh, do you personally choose the T-shirts or does somebody else do that? And no, no, I get, I do get involved. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we always spend a lot of time working on, you know, what the designs are going to be. Are they going to be related to the album or to the live show or, or just an abstract 
you know, design. So yeah, we spend, we spend a lot of time. So if I go to the gig, I've seen you, but not recently. Uh, I saw you at the House of Blues in LA, I believe it was about mm. 20 years mm. ago. But <laughs> right. um, yeah, I don't remember the merch there. But if I go to your gig today, are you going to be at the merch table? Am I going to get to meet you? No, no, we do. We do a meet and greet before the show. Now, I, I used to go out to the table, but um, I found it difficult because it was lovely meeting the fans, but there was quite a lot of drunk people and they were trying to grab me. So uh, my view has been like, it's much nicer to have some sort of dignified greeting with people and be able to spend some time with them and chat properly. So we do that before the shows. Yeah. So you have these meet and greets do you tend to know personally your hardcore fans? I do recognize quite a few of them, yes, and it's 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 very it's lovely actually to to catch up with them and you know have this history that goes back you know maybe you know 30 or 40 years now. Um I don't know all of them, but they you know they will um they will make themselves known to me, you know, they've written something to me on Twitter or something like that. You know, people can eat, you know, they can get hold of me through email if they try hard enough. And uh, I, I try and do one reply a day um, uh, because I can't reply to all of them, but I, I choose one and at least one person's happy, you know. <laughs> How many people reach out in a day? Um, well, because I don't reply all the time, I probably get about four or five emails a day. Yeah. And I assume they have to be pretty good sleuths. I mean, your email address is not that readily mm. available, correct? <laughs> yeah, that's right. They, they, they have to work out <laughs> how to get it. <laughs> let's, let's go back to the point of vinyl. If I go to a gig, mm. uh, you, mm -hmm. you mentioned you know, vinyl may or may not be always mm. available. Do you have vinyl from every album or do you have specialized product for the tour? What do you got? Um, well, usually um, the tour is is associated with an album, but not always. Um, you know, vinyl's so hard to get made now. So there's usually this big lag. You know, the, the CDs are really quick to make, but everybody wants vinyl. So it's taking us like six or seven months to actually get vinyl done. Um, I was very skeptical about <laughs> releasing it on vinyl. I thought, I thought we'd got you know got away from that you know a medium that's that's got built-in noise you know I, I i i it's not the way that i meant it to be when i'm working in the studio however i have become a convert to the sound and there's something about vinyl it's very hard to sort of put your finger on it but it it's it you know it's got a great sound it's not the sound that we originally we're hearing when we mix the record, but it's got another sort of level of, I don't know, nostalgic association with it that really, I think is nice on the ear. I think it's something to do with the, the sound waves being rounded off by the process of, um, of making the vinyl. So I've become a convert and now we, we do vinyl for everything. And, you know, um, Cherry Red handle my early um, catalogue and they're constantly um, putting out vinyl to go with things that people have never been able to get on vinyl, and they absolutely love it. So, 
I, you know, got to go with the fans. That's what they want. Okay. <laughs> yeah, what kind of mic are you using there? I'm, I'm using um, an Apogee microphone. Um, well, the reason that, I um, mentioned is I'm using the identical <laughs> mic. I could just see. <laughs> How did you end up with the uh, hype mic? Well, well, you know, I've been a, I've been a, a friend of Bob Clear Mountains for 35 years. Uh, and uh, Betty, of course, uh, I've known her for even longer, and she runs the company. And so I got this nice, nice little present one day, which I, and I think it's a great sounding mic, isn't it? It's, it's really unbelievable. Cool. The analog compression is one of the great features. Mm, yeah, wonderful. Okay, let's go back to the vinyl thing for a second. So you cut digitally now. How far back in the beginning? If we go like to Humans Lib, uh, yeah. was that cut analog or digital? No, that was recorded onto um, multi-track analog. Although you know we were using um, sampling, you know, prim- well, I say primitive, but I mean it was it was good quality, but it was it only had like a maximum of nine seconds that you could you could you could. Um, you could actually sample. So, so although we were recording to analog, uh, we were using, um, you know, sort of up to, up to nine second, seconds of sampling, which was good for like snare drum samples, bass drum samples, and sometimes a bit of vocal stuff to fly around, you know, um, the tape. But yeah, it was, it was Human Slip and Dream Interaction actually were recorded onto onto multi-track tape yeah okay a little bit slower okay why mm. is there you know if we have analog tape that runs you know mm. 15 or 30 ips when you say you could only use nine seconds explain a little deeper what you mean yeah well um it was the it was the very early days of of um digital sampling so so this was before, you know, you had like Akai sound samplers and Fairlights and things like that. So in the studio, we had a box. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Um, and uh, Rupert Hine and, and Steve Taylor were, were, you know, early adopters of, of, this, of, this, of this technology. And so they could route anything that was being recorded on a desk through to the sampler. And so... For instance, you know, I I would run my drum machines, but we we thought, well, we'd like a, a better a better snare sound or a better bass drum sound, and so we would be able to trigger this this sampler, um, you know, from my drum machine uh, inputs to to actually get a you know a, a better sound through it all. Does that does that sound does that make sense? Well, I think that's about. For the amateur, one can understand it 50 to 70%. But let's mm. go back to the beginning. So when did you start to play a musical instrument? Uh, well, I, I started when I was seven. My my parents were Welsh. They both spoke Welsh. And so in Wales, you know, they grew up in Wales and everyone sings and everyone is interested in music. So it was really important for them to, for, for, for their kids to be able to play an instrument. And I was the first born. And so, it, you know, they, they got me piano lessons when I was seven. Um, 
I absolutely hated it at the beginning. I, I didn't have a very inspiring teacher, but they encouraged me to keep going and I sort of, you know, ground away at it. I got to nine years old and my mother always used to have the radio on. So at nine years old, I, I, I heard this song uh, that I'd seen on TV as well. Um, and it was the winner of the Eurovision Song Contest. It was a song called Puppet on a String by Sandy Shaw. And I heard it on the radio and I went to the piano and I worked out the tune and how to harmonise it. And I thought, and that was like this massive turning point for me um, that, you know, oh, I can hear tunes and I can bring them to the piano and start, you know, play, playing them and trying to get the chords right as well. So, so from that moment on, I was a very obsessed unhealthily obsessed person with the piano and you couldn't keep me away from it. And, you know, I, I should have spent a lot more time out playing football with my friends and stuff like that, but I was, you know, in there banging away on the piano. But of course, you know, I guess it paid off in the end. It certainly did, but let's, okay, you're playing the piano. It's an analog instrument and you came of age with all these digital innovations, etc. When did you start experimenting with synths and drum machines, et cetera? And what was the inspiration? Yeah, yeah well, um, there's a few things. When I, when I think back, I mean, the first band I was in um, was a band called Warrior. And this was when I was still at school. And, and the drummer in the band was a bit of a, a kind of electronics whiz. And he actually made me a synthesizer from... From, in, from a kit that they'd um, they'd had in an electronics magazine. I can't remember the name of it, but he actually made me a one oscillator synthesizer that I could play, um, you know, in the band. And so I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I'd, I'd seen Keith Emerson at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970 when I was, I was too young to be there, but I managed to con my parents into letting me go. Um and saw Emerson with his huge Moog modular and the sounds that were coming out of it. It just absolutely blew my mind. And I kind of, that was it really. That was the turning point, I think. I, I wanted to be involved in this new way of making sounds and this exciting way of, of generating sound, you know. Um, and being a keyboard player, that was going to, you know, what I could eventually start to afford anything resembling what Keith had, um, you know, I would be, I'd be there. I used to hang out at the local Hammond organ shop in High Wycombe um, on, on, on a Saturday afternoon and sort of go in there and they kindly let me mess around on the, on, on the Hammonds. And so that was a, a huge thing for me. I couldn't possibly afford uh, one of those instruments. So my, my parents got me a, a, a Larry Heritage um, which which they got on HP, and then we borrowed a Leslie from the drummer's parents' house. We used to take it around to gigs. Can you imagine this beautiful piece of furniture that's meant to be in the home? Um, and we carted it around, you know, all these <laughs> horrible little gigs that we that we were playing at the time. But yeah, so that was me and my obsession with keyboards. Really, okay. Let's go back. So at age seven, you start playing the piano. How old are you when you get infected by the Sandy Shaw song? 
I think I was I was nine or eleven or something like that around that time. Yeah, I think. And yeah. then when did you start playing in bands or start working with people live? Yeah. Um, well, I think I played in my very first band. I was in Canada because my parents had emigrated to Canada twice, in fact, and they, they came back twice. So the second time we were out there, um, I was at high school and I was invited to be in a band and they got hold of a Vox Continental for me to, to play. And I played some covers like House of the Rising Sun by The Animals and did just one or two gigs before my parents decided to move back to the UK. So um, it was really, that, that, that was the first time I ever sort of played with, with you know, other electric musicians. Okay, um, just hold one second there. How did they yeah. know that you played? Were you like known yeah. as the piano guy? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I, during lunch times, during my lunch break um, at the high school, I used, to, I used to go into one of the classrooms where they had a piano and start playing, you know, because that's my thing. And an audience would gather around and that's how they got to know. Um, it became a bit of a thing. <laughs> and you would play. Did you also sing at the time? No, I didn't sing at the time because um, I never thought of myself as a singer. Although I'd sung as a child and my parents were both singers, not professionally, but, you know, because they loved singing. Um, there was always music and, and I used to, we used to do Beach Boys covers. Um, my, my brothers and I had three brothers and we used to do the, uh, you know, do our best with, the, with, with Beach Boys harmonies when we were really young, when we didn't have any instruments. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I did singing, but I, I, it was never on my radar to be the singer, you know, um, that sort of came much later. Okay. Let's go back to the beach boys. Were you singing mm. the beach boys when you were in Wales? Yes. Yes. You know, um, one of the things about our childhood was that I don't know if, what the, if the tradition is still there now, but when we used to visit our grandparents and our uncles and aunties, we it was kind of expected that you would do you were you would do a performance. You know, they would usually have a piano, so I would play the piano, and then my brothers would uh, join with me and 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 sing harmonies together. So it was you, you know you kind of it, it was performing as a natural way of life, really. So. I kind of think that's the way it should be, really. It, 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 I love that organic way that music is just part of life and you, you learn how to sing, you learn how to play, and then you go around to somebody's house and you, and you do it for them. You know, I mean, it, it's kind of got blown out of all proportion now, isn't it? You know, big stages and stadiums and things like that. But that's, that's the way it was originally. Uh, you know, you were just gather together and listen to somebody play or listen to somebody sing. Okay. Were you a big Beach Boys fan? You know, um, I, at, at that age, we, we, were, we were hearing the, the um, you know, the, the surf era of the, of the Beach Boys. So, you know, on the beach, we used to sing. Um, good vibrations, I don't think we were quite, 
up to up to doing that. But um, it was much later that I, in my life, that I've realized the genius, uh, you know, of of the Beach Boys. And I was I was I was a latecomer. I was a latecomer to it. But when I, once I got there, I was like, oh wow, this is just so great. Yeah. But what's Brian it like? Wilson. What's it like being in Wales listening to surf music? I mean, I grew up in the <laughs> East Coast of America in Connecticut, and I would hear these songs from California. It sounded like a dream. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go out there, be in the surfing culture. But you were in Wales. So mm-hmm. what were these songs meaning to you? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I guess, you know, it's not so far off, really. Because well, Wales, you know, you think Wales is the land of song, and choirs are everywhere i remember when i was living in cardiff uh, i went i used to go to a local church where they had concerts on and there would be like the morriston orpheus choir there you know 100 piece male voice choir singing and it just was just part of you know i didn't you didn't i didn't think anything of it at the time i realized now how amazing it was to have that input into my life um, and, you know, singing was, was you know, if, if you go to a football match or a rugby match, always the Welsh, um, you know, crowds sing so beautifully. They not only sing, but they harmonise as well. It's a kind of natural ability. And so hearing the Beach Boys really, I guess, was, oh, yeah, well, yeah, that's them doing it, but, you know, in the sunshine in California. <laughs> Okay, so you're born in 1955. The Beatles hit in the UK in mm. 62, in America mm. in 64. Were you conscious of the arrival of the Beatles? Oh, yeah, I absolutely was. I mean, my mother listened to the radio all the time, so that's what we, we were hearing all of that, um, you know, coming through the radio. And the Beatles were uh, huge in our family and in my life. Um, and this, you know, way before I could, I had a record player or I could afford to buy a record. Um, you know, it was, um, yeah, massive, massive influence. But I, you know, but all the, all, all those sixties contemporaries of the Beatles as well, you know, Freddie and the Dreamers and the Tremolos and, you know, I, 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 I'd be hearing it, you know, constantly and getting very excited. And I'm so glad that my mother, was a keen radio listener, you know, so, because we didn't have any other means of recorded music in the house. Um, So coming through the radio was a big deal. When you drive a vehicle so reliable, it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. 
We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Okay, uh, needless to say, there was music before the Beatles, but in the U.S. it was palpable. There was a youth quake, as they put it. Everything blew up. There was the Beatles. There was a British invasion. And ultimately, the San Francisco scene in Psychedelia, which the uh, U.K. had a huge part of. There was traffic, et cetera. Was that just music, or could you feel that it was really a scene, and to what degree were you dedicated to it? Um. Well, I think I was probably too young to being being, being able to a, a acknowledge any kind of scene. You know what I mean? You know, like you don't have any previous with it. You know, you don't uh, you don't have any historical references before that. And but it felt to me like the Beatles were young men you know, not that much older than, than you, that were like living through history and reflecting the changes in society with their music and with the clothes they wore and the, and the films they made and the album artwork and the, the clips that we used to see on, you know, on the TV. Um, you know, when they, when they, when they recorded, you know, what is, um, all you need is love. You know, I, I I was remember watching it on the on the TV live as they were doing it, and it's like it's the most exciting thing you could ever imagine. So it was it was amazing actually when you think about it. When I think about it, to grow up with them and and their development, and you know the influence they had on me and my my schoolmates and everything like that. You know, wearing loon pants and you know, going down to Carnaby Street to buy clothes. <laughs> and, you know, it was like, it was so massive. Um, but I, you know, I guess looking back on it, you, 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 you realize the massive impact. Um, at the time, you know, you, you don't really have any 
reference point. You just think, oh, wow, music is the most exciting thing ever in the world. And these guys are the, the best at doing it. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is if you're in the UK, people tend to look down on uh, Liverpoolians as scousers. What was that like? Was there any fascination with Liverpool, the fact that the band came from there and other bands? You know, because I, I hadn't really traveled very much around my own country. I mean, I've been to Canada twice. And I think one of the one of the times we actually sailed from Liverpool, you know, because we went by boat. But I never sort of thought of it as geographical. I just always thought of it as they were in our country. They were of our country. I didn't even think about Liverpool or accents. It was just... You know they're 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 British, and yeah, I, you know it, I, I I didn't analyze it any further than that. Do you speak Welsh? I can I can pronounce Welsh, and I can I can I can read it and 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 uh, and and pronounce it. I can sing in Welsh, but I don't know what I'm saying. Okay, uh, my, my parents. My my parents spoke Welsh at home, but they didn't teach us because they wanted to keep a secret language. <laughs> oh, well, actually, no, that was one thing. That was one payoff of it. But the the main reason was they thought having two language would languages would be an impediment for us. And of course, we know now it's really good to learn more than one language when you're young. Um, but we uh, they 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 held that back from us. Yeah. And what was their history? Were they always, you know, long lineage in uh, Wales? Or what did they do for a living? Yeah, well, my mother was, um, was, was born in Swansea in a very, very working class family. Um, they lived in a, a tiny house. She had like six brothers. She was the youngest and the only girl in the family. And her father worked in the, in the local toy factory, um, in uh you know was a factory worker down in down in Swansea my father uh came from a farming background parents very so poor that they had to send him to live with his grandparents because they couldn't afford to keep him at home with the other uh two children that that they had so so my father was brought up by his grandparents and they were very keen for him to do well you know with his with his with his studies and he and he and he did very well at school and he ended up going to university and going to university in Swansea and that's how he met my my mother and so my father from a very poor background ended up with a good education uh, and my mother was a very wonderful, wonderful, wonderful woman, um, just full of love for everyone, and um, everyone loved her. And uh, so she, she, they, they made a great team, you know. They, they, um, uh, and my mother was very ambitious for her children, and did everything she could to help us get on, you know. And what did your father do for a living? He he was a he was trained as an electrical engineer, and he did various um, 
jobs during his life. He 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 taught at a college. Um, he was involved with computers when he when he came to Canada and worked for the government on computer programs. Um, and then when he came back to the UK, he he was a teacher, a maths teacher. And then when he retired, he helped my mum run our fan club. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, were you addicted to the radio? Your mother was listening, but you were listening to Radio Luxembourg, Radio Caroline? Absolutely. Yes, I was. My my father bought me a little transistor radio and I had one of those little earpieces. I used to fall asleep listening to pirate radio and, you know, Absolutely. it used to go in and out of phase and, and it was a massive, you know, thrill. And it felt like almost clandestine to be there, you know, in, in your bed when you should be asleep, but you're, you're, you've got your little transistor tucked under the pillow and you're listening, you're listening to all this great music, you know? Yeah. And what kind of student were you? Um, well, I, I, I think I was, I was very, uh, competitive. I, I, I wanted to be top of the class when I was young and then something happened. <laughs> Uh, when I came back from Canada the second time, I, I I kind of lost interest in school and I started to become a little bit of a disruptive person in, in the class. And, you know, I, I wasn't big and sporty or anything, but for some reason the kids used to sort of look up to me. So if I did something, they would all sort of like, join in with me I feel terrible now we did some terrible things to the teachers um but um yeah I mean it, it, it just didn't hold hold my interest anymore the the you know the the work and so that's when music really took over and that's something that I could get so excited about and could put like massive amounts of energy and time into and you know I studied I'd get classical piano lessons i i got to grade eight which is the highest grade you you know you get in the uk and then you know i i i, I was four hours a day practicing you know it was i don't recommend it but <laughs> i just it was one of those things i had to do i just had to do it and what'd your parents say well they just encouraged me really i mean although i was one of those kids that kind of I don't know, almost like had a built-in agenda from the from a very young age. I mean, we came back from Canada to High Wycombe and, you know, I had no friends. I I I I had to leave all all everything I was had going there. You know, I just joined a band, I had a girlfriend, and it literally got ripped away. And I came home and we didn't even have a piano. And I, I said to my mum and dad, I said, if you don't get me a piano, I will die. You know, and I, I mean, and in a way, I know that sounds very dramatic, but, um, <laughs> but actually it was true. It was, there was a part of me that would, that would wither away, you know, um, and bless them. They, the very next weekend, they went to Oxford and found this piano. I think it, was, it cost a hundred pounds. 
and they got a higher purchase agreement on it and it was delivered by Monday, you know, and it, you know, it was a, a, you know, quite an old piano, but it did the job for me, you know, and I'm always so grateful for them for that, you know, because they did, they really, they really responded to my, my despair. Okay. How old were you when you went to Canada both times and what were your parents' motivation to go to Canada and come back? Um, well, I, I was nine when we went first, first of all, and I came back when we were 11. And then we, uh, then we left again when I was about 12 and a half to go to Canada and came back when I was 14. So the motivation was, you know, my father was, um, he was restless and he wasn't happy doing the job he was doing. And he saw Canada as a real chance for something new. And he took the brave decision, you know, to take the whole family. And I mean, there was four kids and he went out first and then we followed on the, on the boat, you know? Um, and then of course he, he felt the same. Then when he got to Canada, he, he wasn't happy there. So we'd come back and he wasn't happy again. And, you know, we went out again. So, you know, at the time, I, 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 I suppose I, I was angry with him because, you know, he was taking me away from all the things that, that, that I loved and my friends. And, but now I think to myself, wow, he's a very, made these bold decisions, you know, to do monumental, you know, disruption to the family, but he did it, you know, and I, I, um, I can't, you know, it was, it was, it, 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 it was kind of the making of me in a way. I, I had to be independent and not rely on um, others to, you know, keep myself in a good place. Okay. So you're playing a band for a couple of dates, Canada, you come back. What's the, how do you get a girlfriend so fast? And what's the next step in your musical career? <laughs> well, so okay, so I'm so I'm back in the UK. My my parents get me the piano, and it's really then um, that I start to, you know, get really into music. And and people were trading albums at school, you know, vinyl, of course, and bands like Proko Harum, um, you know, Led Zeppelin, and um, you know. Um, the Beatles and the Stones, and so I was. I, I was. I was always looking out to go to, to shows and gigs. And and in High Wycombe, there's a place called High Wycombe Town Hall where they had lots of bands playing. And there was a place in Aylesbury Friars um, where even more exciting bands used to play. So I I'd be I'd be doing that. And then I met um, an American guy who was at the school that I was in. And he played guitar and was very keen to form a band. And he had a, a house that had a facility for us to be able to, room for us to be able to, you know, to, to, to play. So I used to take a long bus journey every Sunday down to his house. And we, um, and I had a, a, a Hona pianet, which is a, a kind of, you know, a keyboard with pickups inside. I used to put it through a, 
Vox AC30 amp and I used to use a wah-wah pedal with it and distortion and I could actually get it to sound pretty much like a, you know, um, a highly amplified guitar at some, some, some times. And so we had just a whale of a time doing this music. I was writing this ridiculously complicated music that lasted 20 minutes and took forever for the other members of the band to learn. But bless them, you know, they did, they kind of enjoyed it. And, um, so I, 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 I was, it was entirely instrumental. Um, and we played youth clubs and we played local halls and we actually played at our school and, you know, it was like so exciting. It was like the most exciting thing you could ever do. How could I ever want to do anything else? You know, it was, it was just, it was brilliant. Okay. So do you read music? Yes. Yeah. Okay. You had lessons when you were playing four hours a day. Were you also mm. taking lessons? Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, doing, it, and, and doing the exams, you know, the music exams. Yeah. And at what point do you start to sing? Well, you know, it wasn't till much later that I started to sing because although, although, now I, that's really interesting you've asked that because with the band, the, the, the band Warrior um, evolved um, to get more sort of older um, musicians because my friend, my American friend left to go back to America. And so there was a singer in the band and I knew a, a poet who wrote these very verbose <laughs> sort of poems that basically were prose. They, they, they didn't have a rhyming meter in them at all, but yet, but I, I set them to music and it was so difficult. And I, I always think that really helped me to develop my own style of, you know, setting words to music. So I would, I would write the vocal melodies for the singer in the band and, um, but never thought of my, myself as a singer, you know, I'm the keyboard player. I'm, I'm Keith Emerson, you know, <laughs> that's, that's who I want to be. Um, and, uh, it wasn't much later. I, I, you know, went to music college, um, and did two and a half years studying there, you know, with a great piano teacher and then came home and there wasn't anybody around who could sing my my stuff. So I thought, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to sing. I'm just going to have to do it. I'm just going to have to bite the bullet. And I never thought of myself as a singer. I just thought, well, somebody's got to have to do it. So it's it's going to be me. And I think I carried that sort of insecurity about my singing for a long time. I don't have that anymore. I've got over it now. But in the early days, it was like, oh, well, I have to do it because no, there's nobody else there. But I was kind of glad that I did because it was a big part of my, of my life. Okay. So the band with the American was called Warrior. Yeah. Okay. You f leave after two and a half years at music college because? Because uh, I, I was desperate to get on and do my own music. I mean, I, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I was, 
I was absolutely desperate. I mean, I played in bands while I was at, in Manchester up, up at the college and I did sessions on the local radio um, playing covers of, you know, contemporary music like, you know, Stevie Wonder and stuff. Every 20 minutes during the night from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., I'd do a song every 20 minutes. Um, and it was just, it was a legal requirement that you had a live live musician. <laughs> um, so, um, but it was fantastic for me because I got to experiment with recording because I had a little recording studio. So I used to bring in synthesizers, sometimes used to bring in friends to, to do stuff. And we used to, I, I kind of, you know, we did, I did the covers, but we also started to experiment with my own music. And, um, I, you know, got even more, you know, and then also the brilliant thing was I've forgotten about this is that I had access to their music library where they had literally thousands of LPs and I could go in there in between doing these little numbers to go and listen to Billy Joel and, and listen to Surf's Up, you know, and, and discover music that I couldn't afford to buy myself. And so it was, it was a, it was a really cool uh, thing to do, but I, I, I just got this thing. I'm no, I'm never going to be a classical musician. The place was full of these genius musicians. Um, and I'm, I, that's not going to be me. I want to, I want to write my own music and do my own thing. So I took the bold step, left college and went back to live with my parents and got got the first job that anybody offered me which was working in a factory rolling saran wrap to earn you know to earn money and um yeah okay so how long did you roll saran wrap and what were you doing musically <laughs> yeah so i think i was there um i think i was there for at least 2 years two and a half years and so what i was doing was was you know, there was a local recording studio, four-track recording studio. So I, I was able to afford to go in there late at night, you know, because I was at work during the day and I started to write some songs and record them with a local guy called um, Derek Timms, who was, um, who was the engineer. And, you know, sort of experimented with things. I mean, I, I didn't quite know what to do Finally, um, left home to go and live with my my girl, my then um, girlfriend, now my wife Jan, and we moved into a bedsit in High Wycombe, and you know we scrimped and saved um, until we could afford to get a mortgage on a on a small, tiny little house in a quite a rough area of town, and at that point I had room to then think about how I wanted to do, um, you know, my music. And I used to give piano lessons after the, after the, uh, you know, factory. And I was, I, at one time I had 60 students, but hardly, well, l less than half of them came every week. Um, but I had a room where I could start singing. And one of my students lent me a drum machine it was called a Bentley Rhythm Ace. It's very primitive, like one you'd have with a, you know, electronic organ. And I set some of the beats running 
I started playing the piano with it and I thought, wow, this could be, this could be great. You know, you've got the, the drummer there with the drum machine. I can play along. And so I thought, right, I can, I can do like a sort of electronic one-man band here. I, I get some synthesizers, use the drum machine, um, little sequencer, um, and maybe nobody's ever done this before. You know, I, I, I thought, wow, this is really exciting. So I, I went about doing that, um, got a couple of synths that I bought up in Den Denmark Street, um, one for bass, one for the t lead lines. They were mono synths. And then I had um, another keyboard that, you know, arpeggiated stuff that had a little 12-note sequencer. So it was all very manual. I had to set everything up before a gig, but I started to get gigs. I would play anywhere. And, you know, it's hard for any musician getting a gig, isn't it? So we would phone up pubs and say, look, we'll set up a stage, a little stage in the corner. We'll bring lots of people. They'll drink lo loads of beer and you'll, you know, you'll be really happy. And this, it wasn't like a regular club gig. I couldn't possibly approach anybody in London. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that. Um, and we started to build quite a following, you know, with people coming to those little shows. Um, people started to start traveling with us. We arranged coaches so they could come to gigs because gigs always wanted you to bring your your own audience, you know. Um, so people, you know, we used to get 60-seater coaches filled with people from High Wycombe. And we'd travel around the country. <laughs> um, I think our record was three coaches full but when we played the marquee in London. So, so and it, it was great because it was such an organic development of the, of the sound because I'd be working away um, in my front room and then in the evening I'd be out playing it to people, you know, brand new stuff and developing this concept of the electronic musician, you know, playing live. Okay. It was all original material. And when you say we, who was we? Well, it was all, it was all original material. I never played anything. The only cover I did was um, an Enola Gay by OMD, which I loved so much. Um, yeah, so when I say we, I, you know, I had to be helped by friends. So friends who did sound for me, um, friends who helped me move the gear. And then eventually Jed, who was, a, uh, was the, the mime, you know, who I saw in the audience. He was a friend who danced in the audience. I thought he should be on stage with me. Let's create characters to to go with the music so that so that you know we have something visual going on because I'm a keyboard player I, you know I'm fairly static um we need some visual things so Jed was that we got some TVs uh and a friend made some uh videotapes that we could show on the TV so we had kind of an audio visual <laughs> alternative <laughs> um you know cabaret almost type type thing with it with all this with all this new electronic music it was such fun we had such a great time doing it and um it was like there was no fear you know you just went out there and tried something new every night it was just great i, I did love those times welcome to 500 greatest songs 
a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, I know how hard it is to gain an audience. Who is managing the audience? Who is ordering the coaches? Who is spreading the word? Yeah, well, um, my... um my 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 wife Jen was 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 organizing the coaches. I didn't have the confidence to phone up pubs and say, you know, will you have me playing there? So I got my friends, my friends to do that. So I was I had this, um, you know, great group of friends who who helped me to do it. And uh, yeah, I mean, and we kind of did it together. And was there any money involved? Oh no. <laughs> No, no, we uh, we used to sell cassettes that I used to make myself one by one at home, and uh, just to pay for petrol and and actually to you know buy food. To be honest, we there, we it was like you know uh, so much. 
we, uh, Jan was working at the tax office. I was working in the factory, so we weren't earning a lot of money, and it was all going on funding the, you know, funding the music. Um, I mean, there was one, and uh, one of the jobs we did was uh, I did a. Um, I wanted to get out of the factory because I needed more time to perhaps go up to London and see A and R men or whatever that was. I didn't even. I didn't know anything about the music business. Zero. Um, so we were out one night, we're doing this fruit and veg round and a drunk driver hit the front of the van. The van rolled over my wife, Jan. She was trapped under the van. I was inside the van and was un unharmed, but Jan, um, injured her back. She was in hospital and, uh, with the money that she got from the insurance of the, of the driver, she wanted to give to me to buy since and so i i bought you know my first jupiter 8 and it was a big moment because we both could have been killed that night and i thought there's nothing to lose here you know your life may be over you know um in the next hour the next day so just go for it you know go for what you really want to do don't hold back don't have plan b just go for it. And, and that really did change. And we, things really started to move after that because there was this new real commitment, you know, there's no time to waste. Let's get going. And uh, it wasn't very long after that. Well, there was quite a story, but I, um, you know, I did, um, things started to move for me. So what happened? Um, well, you know, I was I was sending out tapes to everyone and getting complete, you know, we, we still have all the rejection letters. It's fun to read <laughs> them. Um, all the publishers, all the labels, big and small, just said no, except one, <laughs> one guy um, from Stiff Records. Uh, and his name was Paul Conroy. He was the... I think it was that he was marketing there, or, um, but he came to see me. I was playing the Nags Head in High Wycombe and he brought Dave Robin Robinson, who was the MD. Stiff was not a good fit for me, really, because it was, you know, Elvis Costello, um, Madness. You know, it, 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 I, I suppose you could say, you know, more hip, cool, cooler acts than I was, I was ever going to be. And, but Paul came, came to the gig and there was, there was some sort of row on the way home with hit with, with him and Dave Robinson and um, his wife. I think that was, well, there was a heated exchange and, and Paul said, let me out of the car now. We missed out on Depeche Mode. We're not missing out on this guy. <laughs> so, so Paul's commitment was just incredible. And so I was lined up to sign to Stiff. So I was playing a gig in um, London and I was going to be signing the contract after the show. And so the contracts were there. This is like, this is my big break. I'm actually going to sign a record deal. And Paul comes in and he says, don't sign it. Don't sign it. 
<laughs> I said, what, what, what are you talking about? I've been waiting my whole life. I'm 28, you know, I'm already sort of past sell-by date for a young artist. He said, no, I'm, I've just been offered this job with WEA, uh, with, with um, Rob Dickens, MD, and Max Hole, A&R. And he said, I want you to come with me to WEA. What an amazing break to have, you know. And I'm so grateful. And they, so I was their kind of first signing. So they were absolutely determined that we were going to have success together. And, and we did, you know, right from the first single. Okay, a little bit slower. You signed the deal. To what degree are the songs written? How do you end up involved with another lyricist? You know, did these songs just spontaneously happen? Or was there a lot of input from Paul and other people? No, the, well, the songs uh, were were there, you know, from all my hundreds of little gigs I was doing. So the first album was really ready. You know, it was, it, it was, it was what I was playing live. And... Um, we just needed to find the right person for me to work with. And I think it was Max Hole's idea for me to work with Rupert Hine. And what a brilliant move that was because Rupert was the perfect person for me and an absolutely wonderful man. And Steve Taylor, who I still work with now. Um, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was so exciting. Cause I, you know, the first single, it was a bit of a struggle to record and um you know it it, it it they had to get other people in to sort of fix things I, i'd never been in a proper studio before so i couldn't really add much to it all well so you know this is what i do this is what it sounds like live um but anyway it it, it came together in the end and it took forever to go up the charts i think it took three three months to go. Came in at number hundred and six, I think it was. Actually, you you probably know more than me about this, Bob. You're an expert at those sort of figures. Um, but it came in a bit disappointingly, you know, hundred and six, and then crept up the charts every week. It's just a few places, a few places, and at any point they could have lost it. And it would all have been over, but it kept going, kept going. I got top of the pops, and that was it. The floodgates opened, and um, the single ended up at number three, you know, and um, uh, we kind of never looked back from there, really. Okay, when the record was finished in the studio, did you think it was going to go up the charts? Um. I had I had no idea I I I liked to think that it would I had no confidence that it would um but I remember um list, uh, listening to radio 1 and they had this thing called round table where they reviewed new singles and it was going to be the first playing of one of my songs on the radio so I was like kind of excited but also terrified and Gary Newman was on the panel and, 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 and Gary said, oh, I think this is great. I think it's going to be a big hit. 
it's like Gary Newman is saying that. So, so that was a, I, I, I hope he's heard that story because I really want to thank him for, because it gave me a, a big boost at the time. It was great. And how do you end up working with lyricist Bill Bryant? Uh, well, Bill was a, you know, a friend from, from the old days. And, you know, he, um, he was very committed to sort of, you know, philosophical ideas, which was very much in tune with me. So he used to give me like, uh, you know, sheets of paper with ideas, uh, you know, not really sort of formed poetry. And then I would weave it into a song. And so there was several, you know, tracks on that first album that he had, uh, big input with with you know with the lyrics yeah and the single was the whole album done when the single came out or was the single released and moving up the charts while you were still cutting the rest of humans lib yeah yeah um well new song was released and because it took so long to go up the chart um it was good in a way because we, we had a chance to find the right producer for me, which was Rupert, you know, with Steve Taylor doing the engineering. And so as it was getting to number three, uh, I was in the studio with Rupert and we were, we were recording what could be the next single, which is what is love. And it was incredibly exciting because it felt like, you know, what is love was going to be, you know, this time we wouldn't start at number 109. We'd, we would probably be getting airplay straight away. So it was really exciting. And, and um, I think the energy really um, got poured into the album and it was made really quickly. I think it was six weeks it took to do it completely and mixed and everything. Um, and there was a lot, um, yeah, it was, it was just excitement, energy around it all. And that, that gets embedded in the music, you know, and I, I, I think it was, um, Again, you know, for me, I'd never never recorded a record properly with anybody. So Rupert and Steve were were teaching me how to make records, and it was a fantastic education. It was like, you know, a university course in the studio. It was just amazing watching them at work and the way they thought and the way about structure and about placing sounds and you know, it was, it, and Rupert had this great way of making everything fun. You know, it wasn't like a dreary, he would never let me do more than four takes on the vocal because he didn't want me to get bored out of my mind. It would be four takes, that's it. Comp those four and that's it. And that always worked. Um, and, you know, like very spontaneous performances, nothing labored, um, and you know all his amazing experience that he that he had, so I, I gained so much from that. Yeah. Well, my favorite song on the album is "Hide and Seek." Can you tell me about writing and recording that? Yeah, I I remember, you know, in our little house in in Green Street, coming down one Sunday morning and having this idea for a heartbeat rhythm, and. 
I sort of programmed it into the 808 drum machine, you know, dum dum, dum dum. And the song just came. I, you know, it's, it's, that doesn't happen to me very often, but this one, it sort of came preformed. Um, and I, I, I'd been reading a lot of um, philosophical works um, about the, you know, the um, Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy coming together. And it very much, you know, the idea, um, Watson, wasn't it? I can't remember his first name. I think it was an English philosopher who had gone to live in California. Alan, sorry, Alan Watts. That's right. right. And I was reading a lot of, I was reading a lot of that. And, and he was talking about how you would describe God to a child. And he was saying, you know, um, that, you know, telling a story of, of, of God deciding that he would lose himself in everything. And so you, you had to find him. And the fact is that, that, or he or she, you know, you know, um, and so that, that, that God entity was in everything and surrounding everything. And that to me was very much linking Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy at the same time. And, you know, hope you find it in everything is the chorus. And so, you know, that's very much about, about that theme that, that you, that if you, if you look around you, all the answers are there. If you, if you really open your eyes to what's going on, um, the answers are right in front of you. And yeah, so that's where the song came from really. It was, how did you end up on Electra in the U.S.? And did you have a relationship with Bob Krause now? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was to do with Bob. Uh, Bob came over to London, and you know, because I could have gone with any of the you know the the, the three companies, Warner's, Electro. So I think that I think they all wanted me. Um, but Bob was the the guy who. You know, I mean, he really impressed me. I mean, he was so full of life and such a big character. And he convinced me that they would do a great job for me, and they did. They really did. Okay, yeah, this fantastic. you're uh, considered part of the group of the English New Wave, and certainly mm. that coincided with the explosion of MTV, which leads mm. us to videos. At what point did mm. videos come into the picture, and what was your experience there? Yeah, well, videos for me were right, right from the beginning because new song. You know, we, we're starting this new era. Everyone was doing a video, and the new song video. I wanted to be involved in the, you know, in the narrative of it because. Yeah, because I, you know, I'm very involved in my in everything to do with my music. I want to be very involved with um, with the video. So we thought we'd do an almost like autobiographical video of of me uh, and Jed, you know, being in the factory. Um, it wasn't a saran wrap factory. It was that you know, it was a we found a pickle factory, and we're bursting out of the of the factory jumping into a Rolls Royce and driving off to, you know, 
<laughs> bright sunny future. But also we go into we go into a school as well, and um, you know, uh, you know, try almost like an, um, you know, cause anarchy in the in the classroom, um, sort of mildly, you know, taking you know, making fun of the of the teachers and standing on the desks and then, you know, then running out, you know, we're running out of the school with the kids. So, yeah. So no, it was really good fun. It was such good fun making videos. It was done in a day. It didn't cost hardly anything. Um, and you know, that was what, you know, we thought, you know, we're making this for MTV and, and, and it, it was great. It was going to be shown, you know, so, um, yeah, I, I'm so glad that I got the chance to work with visual side of things because, you know, you have to think differently. You have to think about what it looks like. You have to think about clothing. You have to look, think about narrative and what you stand for. And it, 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 it sort of expands the creative process, really. I loved it. Okay. What's it like suddenly being in the maelstrom? You go from nowhere to having multiple huge hits. Yeah. Well, it was it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. I don't think anybody could be pre prepared for that unless you were brought up in a celebrity family, I suppose you might understand. And then probably would put you off for life <laughs> ever doing the same thing. Um it was just that I couldn't go anywhere. You know, when I tried to go into town, I got chased by, you know, 30, 30 teenagers. I, 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 you know, I had to sort of hide away. I mean, I was, it was, um, it was a shock because I wasn't living in London. I was living outside. And, you know, I think in London you can, you can, you can be known and, sort of walk around the streets and find like you can in New York or LA or somewhere, but, but not, not in, not in High Wycombe. And it was, it, it was a shock, but it was incredibly exciting at the same time because you were doing the things that you dreamt that you may be able to do one, t you know, at some time, being on the TV, doing great gigs, doing big gigs, you know, meeting people that you never met before. Um, that you'd put up on a pedestal and, you know, I mean, just going to top of the pops and seeing all the bands and, and, and saying hello to them. I mean, you know, it was just, it was fantastic. So at, at, on one side is things are never going to be the same because overnight everyone knew who you were. So you, and also, you know, I was quite recognizable the way I looked and dressed. So, I wasn't going to be able to hide that very easily. So your freedom gets taken away a bit in one way, but then a whole new world opens up. Now I was very lucky because I had my friends around me at that time, you know, I Jan um, and people who did my sound and people who did my lights, you know, they'd grown up with me. They'd seen me come from nothing. So I had them to help me, stay grounded as a person. And, you know, those people, most of those people ended up doing Madison Square Garden with me, you know, a few years later. And I, I'm sort of really proud of that. 
um, that the same team was still still with me, and I think they protected me from losing my mind, which I think can happen. What about the temptations? Well, you know, I, I, I've I've got my Jan, you know, my my lovely Jan. So I, I I was not in. I was not on the. I was not looking for a relationship that really helped me. I mean, I I used to drink, but I used to drink before I got you know famous. I, you know, I had a few pints down the by the pub. Not anything of a problem. I'm not interested in drugs. So I didn't really have that side of it. We didn't live in a druggy area in, in the High Wycombe, particularly. I wasn't um, in London or New York. So I think that, yeah, it just didn't go that that way. And I, I, I think because I was older, I was 28, when I got signed. So maybe i got a lot of that out of my system you know before 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 um that struck <laughs> and when did you see any money and what did you do with it <laughs> <laughs> well <clears throat> they they said they told me that i'd recoup my advance with the first single <laughs> so isn't that amazing um and also my manager, David Stops, made sure that I I owned my own publishing right from the beginning. It was administered by Warner Brothers, but it was owned by me. They didn't own a share of it. And I'm eternally grateful to him for that, you know, um, he knows that I've told him so much because it's it's because I write everything myself. So, so it's 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 really important that you you've got something through good times and bad that can fund what you really want to do. You know, with your with your career. So, just fantastic. Um, but the, and then you know I could afford to make really good videos with great um, video directors. You know, because the money you know the money was coming in um and then you know yeah so so I, I kind of been very you know very fortunate in that in that way but I I come from a background where you know we never had any money so I don't think that ever leaves you you know you you always want to be careful you know want to be careful have you know make sure that if if something if something goes horribly wrong, that you've got a bit of a backup, you know that you because I couldn't exactly go back to working in a factory now, you know wouldn't it's not going to work. So, um, so make sure that you, you know, take you know make sure that you have got backup. <laughs> do you still own your publishing? Yes, I do. Yeah. Would you ever yeah. sell it? That's a really good question um, because I've thought about it quite a lot because I get why people towards the end of their career, end of their life, consider it because they don't want to land their kids with a massive problem or, you know, of, of administering 
you know your your legacy it's not you know it's not theirs it's it's yours um you're handing them a bit of a problem and i think that a lot of my you know i've had this conversation with a lot of my contemporaries about you know wh why they would consider doing it and um i think in you know in the next few years i i will i will think about it um but it would uh, the reason for that is is to make it simple for my my kids and how are revenues from publishing these days yeah well they they're good because uh, i still get played on the radio pretty much as much as i've always been forgetting savings can you just live yeah. off the income of your songs yes Yes. That's fantastic. I comfortably do that, yeah. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so 
you have this huge success on the first album. How inhibited are you about going in and making a second record? Are the songs already written? Do you have to write them? What? Well, I was absolutely terrified about writing the, the second album because I had the songs the first one. I had nothing for the second one. And, and I was working literally every day in some capacity, promoting in the studio, doing TVs, and it even included like being going to children's hospitals and on on Christmas Day, you know. To um, it was literally every day. So where, how the hell am I going to write? And you, I was terrified because I it taken me so long to get to the point where I had a record deal, and I had some success. I didn't want to blow it, you know. It's like, oh, you know, I was I was scared. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to write on the road. I'm going to, you know, in those times between the sound check and when you go on stage, I'm going to have to be writing. So wherever that is. So I, I, I got this 12-track uh, recorder that I could, that my roadies set up for me in, in every, in every dressing room. And I would write, you know, in the afternoon after soundcheck and gradually got together some songs. And, and it was interesting because, because you're on the road, it's all very exciting and you're playing to these massive audiences and they're loving it, you know, so it's, it's wonderful feeling. And so you can draw on that energy and, put that into the music because often you know i've found sometimes in the past when you're when you're writing in um a new record you're at home adrenaline is not flowing you can be quite introspective and the music won't really be relevant to going out there you know being extrovert so writing on the road although it was very hard to do because you have to be disciplined about it um, it, it, it was, it was really gr grabbing some energy from those, from those gigs in the evening. You know, it was really, um, amazing. And then I used to make cassettes and then go on the tour bus and play it to the band and say, Oh, what do you think? You know, and like, try, try it out in front of my, uh, my band. So yeah, um, I managed to do it somehow and, you know, despite all those all those difficulties, and it, um, you know, it turned out okay. So you do the second record, also successful. How do you end up leaving uh, Rupert and end up going with a reef? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, I I'm going to be completely honest about this because. You know, looking back, I, I, I thought, for a start, I should have had a should have had a conversation with Rupert and Steve about this, because we'd had just you know massive success with this, you know, with the uh, with the first two albums, and why would you want to go? You know, we we loved each other. You know, we had a great time making the records. Why would you want to go? with a, another producer. But I suppose for me, it was like the record company had suggested 
Arif, and he, he had just worked with Scritti Politti, who one of one of my absolute favourite bands of that era. I just absolutely loved what what they did, and I loved what you know the the unbelievable legend you know that Arif Mardin was and is was. Um, you know, had brought to their music. You know, it's like I'm from that. I'm from that place. So it was so tempting to 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 get it, have a new experience. You know, and I'm I'm a young man. I want to learn as much as I can from people. And so I got really really excited about that. And I and and it was it was great working with Arif, and he was wonderful. And my only tinge of regret was that I didn't give him more control of the album because <laughs> I'm so I just must be I must be a control freak really I I I just want to you know I you just you're working with this man who's like got a lifetime of experience of making some of the greatest records ever made make sure that you give that person a chance to do his thing, you know? And I, I I think I could have done that more, but there we are. You know, you're a young person. What do you do? Benefit of hindsight. And did it kill your relationship with Rupert? Oh no, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> we, 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 we stayed absolute lifelong friends. I mean, I was, I was with him two days before he passed away, you know, when he was on his, on his deathbed and I was there and I was talking with him. Well, he couldn't really hear me by then, but um, all through my life, Rupert has been there and he's been a supporter of mine. He's been executive producer. He's been cheerleader and He's always been, he was always, it was always there for me. It didn't affect it at all. And what, what an incredible man. Okay, so No One Is To Blame is on the second album with Rupert, but the hit yeah. version yeah. is with Phil Collins. How did yeah. that come together? <laughs> yeah, well, the original version on Dream Interaction, and it's quite stark, you know, it's got these, really brutal drums, a bit of piano, and it's, it's stark. I, and I love it. I, but I did think that the song, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a radio guy, you know, as I was telling you from the beginning, lots of bands didn't want to be on the radio. I did. The radio, you can listen to the radio anywhere. I mean, it's what I grew up with, you know, so I thought, we, I'm sure we can do a version that could be played on the radio. And so we tried. We tried at the farmyard, you know, you know um, we gave it another go, and it didn't quite work out. And so I, I kept going with the idea, you know, I, it, it was instigated by me. Um, and I think I even played it to Bob Krasnow in his office once, and I said, you know, because they he, he he still had a piano in his in his in his office, I, and I played him the song, 
And I said, I really think this could work at radio. And he said, no, no. He said, you know, it's a, it's a B-side, man. Um, I kept, still kept believing in it. So I got to know Phil through doing Princess Trust things and charity stuff. Really got on well with him. We, uh, we had a great time together. And so David approached him, and I think the record company as well, to see if he would be up for it. And he loved the song recognized what he could do with it and we did it in two weekends you know i i brought um aphrodisiac my backing singers down to sing i programmed up a two-bar pattern for him to play drums to i persuaded him to sing on it <laughs> um and it was just fun it was really fun making it you know because it was so quick it just uh, the piano part was done in one take um and yeah, it just, just came together. It was brilliant. And, um, you know, radio really, really liked it. So I did get, I mean, the only thing I'd say is that as big as it, as it was not, people don't know that it's me <laughs> because it was quite different to, to everything else that I'd done. So, um, but you know that's my job now is to connect that those two things together. <laughs> what did Krasnow say when you came back with the finished product? Well, you know he's he's he was very he was very pleased. He was very pleased. I don't you know yeah oh yeah I guess you were right. <laughs> so then you end up producing yourself. Hmm. Is that because you're a control yeah, freak? You yeah. say now I want to be in control. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it, it was it was to do with um, you know I built a studio at home. I got uh, young children now, um, so I need, wanted to be at home more. You know, we used to take the kids when we when they were very little on the road, but I wanted to be around, so I had a studio, and I had all the time in the world to, to you know to work on stuff. So yeah, so I felt confident that I could do that i'm not sure if that was a bit misplaced i think it's always good to to have someone else giving you another opinion and guiding you through i think that's good so i i didn't really have that so but you know still did okay i think <laughs> so how did it end with you and the major label Well, yeah, I mean, I, there was a five-album deal come to the end of it, and I, I was kind of hopeful that they would want to continue with me because I absolutely felt that I had tons more to to give. And um, no, they didn't. They didn't want to. So, I mean, in a way, it was you know, I, I was devastated at the time. I thought, oh, this is the end. I'm finished. I won't ever make a record again. I will now um, drift into obscurity and nobody will ever want to know about me again. And I, I was very, I was really depressed actually because it is what I, I wanted to continue. And I loved the people that I was working with. It's not like I had a bad time with the label. These are people I really liked. And I know a lot of artists don't have that situation, but it, it, I had a great time. They were great for me to me and for me um but it was good because six weeks of depression and i thought 
hang on a minute, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I can now become an independent artist because the tools were starting to become available to us. You know, the internet was developing. You could contact people yourself. Um, I booked a tour. I made an album really quickly, got it out, made artwork, boom. You know, I was off. And it was a whole new adventure where you could be I say in control because you're never really in control of everything, but you, you you can lead the direction of your career and your life. What about the lack of radio success and reach that a major label can give you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I knew that I had to sack. You know, I wouldn't have that. Um, and it was a new era. You know, I was now in dialogue with my fans, and it was it was really about you know, really looking after them. Um, new new albums, new material, you know, great touring. Um, and it was about, and I think, you know, there really is a place for that. I think, you know, when you're starting your career, it's really absolutely brilliant to have a major label firing on all cylinders for you. But then when you, you know, when you want to really sort of follow your own course and not be in that game anymore, it's great to be independent and um, really sort of think about that relationship with the fans. As you're growing up and getting older, they will be too. What's going to be relevant to them? You're not going to be writing pop songs for, you know, for pop radio now. You're, you're, you're going to be writing songs for people who are having kids and going through breakups and um, struggling with, you know, with money and stuff and, 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 and problems and the, everything that comes with growing older. So that's not really material for, you know, for young people and stuff. So it, 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 it really fitted for me. Um, and I've been, you know, I've been, I've been, I've been really happy doing that. How'd you end up in the restaurant business? <laughs> well, you know, I've been I've been a vegetarian since I was twenty one, so that was that's a big thing for me. Um, there's never anywhere to eat, <laughs> you know. So, uh, David, my manager, David Stops, and I decided that we would open a restaurant and. A crazy mad idea i mean and in new york as well where we don't live you know <laughs> so, um so well, we had this idea that we would get amazing chefs the menu would be so exciting that it didn't matter if you're a vegetarian or not you would love the food and there's a bar there there's a jukebox it's great art on the walls and uh all those things we did you know and it and it and it and it worked we had uh, fantastic people coming down. Lou Reed, um, Madonna, um, Michael J. Fox, the British bands who are coming over from the UK to play in New York would come down, and we fulfilled all the, all that stuff. But we 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 did lose a lot of money, um, and the place almost burnt down to the ground as well. So I think it was two and a half years it lasted, and and we had to finally close. But I like to think that it helped the cause of more vegetarian places or vegetarian food being available 
you know, after that, and that we sort of maybe helped us to push that idea forward with people that it could work, you know, and um, it could be great, fantastic, yummy food. Um, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I don't regret it. Um, even though it probably would have been a better idea to buy <laughs> an apartment <laughs> in New York. <laughs> okay. Have you consistently, because it's hard to tell from the outside, have you consistently played music, made music, gone on the road, or once we hit the 90s and the turn of the century, where's, were there a few years where you mm. stepped away and said, Lane, I'm going to do something different now, get perspective? Mm. Um, I, I, there, was, there was definitely a time, um, and, I, and, and I think you're right, you know, during the early 90s where... I just felt nobody really wanted to know at all about my, me and my music and probably some of my contemporaries as well would be in the same position. Um, and the eighties was so poorly regarded, um, in highfalutin circles as, as a, you know, as not a particularly great decade of music, but which obviously I, I disagreed with, but, um, but it was the sort of common feeling. Um, and you know, it was, it was a time of reassessing everything. And I, I thought, uh, you know, we, I didn't do so many shows. I, 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 you know, nobody wanted to put you on and, you know, yeah, it was, it was, it was a, it, it was a bump in the road. Absolutely. Um, so the, my thinking was to, you know, go back to my roots, which my roots were electronic, you know, generated music. And so we, we did this crazy um, tour uh, where we played the um, sort of almost like big pubs around the UK. And we did it all electronically, um, it was different every night. We had lots of um, sampling going on, and the, and Robbie was out on on the mixing desk. He's actually in the band now, but he was out on the mixing desk doing all kinds of sound manipulation. And so a lot of experimentation was going on, and we used to record it and make CDs on the premises that night to sell to the people. So they actually got. CD that uh, with artwork generated from the gig before they left the venue. Um, we couldn't always fulfill all the orders, so we had to send them on. But um, I, we may be one of the first people to do that because we were doing it with like conventional CD burners. We weren't doing it with industrial level stuff, you know. Um, and so it was just thinking, you know, then, and really that's the roots of, of where I've, got back to today was that um we just kept incrementally making things better and developing a kind of hybrid between electronic music and great playing and i think that's where you know uh where we've got to now but it was it's sort of reinventing all that stuff so yeah it was it was it was a it was a uh, you know, not, it was a weird time 
um, for us during the during the nineties. But you know, it gradually started to to come good. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You speak about the denigration of the 80s. Mm. Although mm. I'm a big fan, you've mm. gotten mm. a good number of negative mm. reviews. Now, that was a different mm. era where people, now it mm. doesn't even apply guys you know without a date and skinny jeans judging everything but how did but, but how did you handle that uh, i didn't handle it very well at first i realized i mustn't read it because i it was poisoning me you know because i had so much abuse really it was um you know the 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 bit that hurt most was that i was a manufactured pop star and it couldn't have been further from the truth you know it was a totally grassroots led thing you know i i started 
playing in the most humblest places and built a following um, that wanted to follow me around, around the country. And I was doing something that nobody had done before. And uh, so it was hurtful. Rolling Stone said, um, Howard Jones doesn't need to turn up to his shows, he just sends the gear and his roadie presses the button. You know, the, the, the level of <laughs> kind of ignorance about what we were doing was like gross. But, and then there was this whole thing about anything that was involving synthesizers was, had no soul and it was soulless music. Um, it was mechanical and, you know, and so I absolutely fight that. I had the, the, the musicians union wanted to get rid of me, um, to ban me from being in the musicians union because they said I was taking work away from musicians. It was like, every front you're being attacked and then at the same time the fans and the people who love the music were just you know loving it and i i used to get really annoyed that people would write off the 80s um as a you know uh, as a as a terrible decade for music but i used to say well hang on a minute, aren't you writing off a whole generation of people at the same time? <laughs> it's, like, it's like they actually love that music. Of course, you know, things have changed now and, and I think, you know, it, it has become recognised as, as, yeah, great. It's a great, exciting time for, for, for music and very diverse as well. And so that's great. But, um, but, you know, we did have to go through that period of, yeah, bumps in the road, yeah. It's, it's part of life, isn't it? <laughs> so how did you meet Jan and what made it sustain? <laughs> okay, so Jan, um, we've been together for, I don't know, 45 years or something like that. Um, I was best friends with her brother and he was the one who enabled me to go to the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970. So I'll always be grateful to him for that. My parents wouldn't have, wouldn't have let me go unless he'd been there. So his young sister, Jan, um, I got to meet through him and she wanted to have piano lessons. And so I taught her to play the piano and she actually got to grade five which is, you know, which is quite good, really. And um, so, obviously, we, we weren't going out or anything at that time. Um, but then I went to music college, came back, she went to college, and then we we met up, and that was it. We 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 moved out um, into our own bed, sit, place, one room, room, and built our life, you know, from there, from nothing, really. It was, um, it's a great, I'm very proud of it, really. You know, we, we literally had nothing. And um, we just had a great time, you know. Um, we've always had each other as support. And, you know, I'm, I am an, an artist and I am subject to the, you know, the, you know, the criticisms and the and the ups and downs that you get um, when you stick your head above the parapet and you say, oh, listen to my music, you know. Um, and obviously there's going to be people that 
don't like you doing that. And, and, and so having somebody like Jan, who always grounds me and, you know, reminds me of what's real, um, has been like, it's been the joy of my life. You know, whatever may be going on around, I, the, the real joy has become, has come from our, our relationship. Okay, you also played Live Aid, which was such a big mm. deal at the time, but has become absolutely legendary, iconic on the level of the original Woodstock. How did you end up being on the show, and what was your experience? Well, I'd missed out on being on the single, um, Do They Know It's Christmas, Feed the World, and I really felt that I should have been part of that. I should have raised my hand and said, I need to be on this. I'd really want to be on this. It's such a great thing. Uh, but I, I, I missed out. So when I heard about Live Aid, I said to David, you know, we, we have to get in touch with Geldof and say that I, I will do anything to be part of this because it is the, such a great thing to be doing. You know, we're going to save lives with this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be brilliant. And I want to be part of it. I want to throw my weight behind it. And Geldof, you know, is very pragmatic. He said, you know, you, 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 you've, to be on it, you've had to sell a million albums in the last six months. And I, and at that time in my career, that's, that was a yes. So we, 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 he had shows on the, on the West coast of the, of the US. I, I flew back to London with, aphrodisiac my three backing singers and you know it was it was it was just such i met i met diana um i met david bowie i hung out with mccartney and linda mccartney linda took a picture of me and paul i got to do hide and seek my favorite song i mean i i i there were so many things that happened to me that day. It was, it was, I can remember all of them and, and it was just brilliant flying in on a helicopter, a copter with members of the queen, um, David Bowie knowing who I was and then knowing that I was doing pretty well in America, um, performing outside acapella with my, with the, the girls, aphrodisiac, um, to two people, one of them was Townsend, and one of them was David Bowie. I mean, all these stories that I, 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 I these people that I thought I would never meet. I mean, the Who was the first band I ever saw when I um, um, in Canada going to a proper concert, and you know, having Townsend standing in front of you listening to your music was like, <laughs> oh, that's nice, it's just great. I don't know. It was, it was, I felt, I feel really privileged that I was a part of it. And with regard to Feed the World, Do They Know It's Christmas, I invited Midge to tour with us this summer. And we were work, trying to work out what song we should do together. And I said, oh, look, can we do, you know, Feed the World? Because he hardly ever does it. You know, he wrote that with, with Geldof, of course. And, so I got to do it. I got to sing all the parts. I, I, you know, if you wait long enough, all your dreams will come true, right? 
Well, I hope that's true. One of my dreams being able to talk to people like you, bridge that gap. Howard, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Well, I, thank you, Bob, um, the legend that you are for, for, for doing this interview with me. I really, really appreciate it. And, and it's um, lovely to do an in-depth thing like this. I've really enjoyed your your podcast with Daryl Hall, I, I learned so much from that. I learned so much. It's so, it was very inspiring. So um, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.